Well, good morning, CCF family. It's great to be with you all uh, this first Sunday, first day of the new year. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Grant Dix. My wife and I, uh, Rays, have the privilege of being members of this church. We're also right now preparing to be sent to Hungary to be missionaries there. We're so thankful that CCF is our, our home church and our sending church. Uh, we've been blessed by this church, and we have and continue to grow uh, spiritually each day that we spend with you all. Uh, this morning, I've decided to look with you at a favorite passage of just about every missionary that I know, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. It's a well-known passage, but like many of the most well-known passages, there's a whole lot to get out of it, uh, and it's worth coming back to over and over again. It also serves as a great beginning of the year text, because it connects to what we just celebrated last Sunday in the Advent, and it allows us to direct that celebration to change how we live each day. If you haven't already made some New Year's resolutions this year, this text may serve you in adding some direction to those resolutions. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. We'll read the passage, I'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. Listen to the word of our God in Christ and our Savior and King, Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for a, a new day and a new year in which we get to serve you. Uh, I pray that as I speak this morning that you would speak through me uh, and that our knowledge and our love of you would be deepened through our time and your word. We love you, Father, and we ask that that you would bless our time this morning. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So even in the year uh, 2023 now, uh, there continue to be dozens of nations around the world that have a, uh, a practice of required military service for their citizens. Maybe you've met someone who, following their high school graduation, uh, had to decide between fulfilling their national responsibilities first, or going and getting their college degree and then returning to their home country and fulfilling those responsibilities. Typically, these responsibilities are for young men, but at times they're for young women as well. South Korea is one of these countries that has uh, those sorts of requirements. They require almost two years of service from all men aged 18 to 28. Israel is Another example of one of these nations, they require two years from women starting at age 18, and then they require three years from men starting at the same age. How does this practice sound to you? Does it, does it sound like a, uh, a strange practice? In the grand scheme of history, it's really not that abnormal. 
In fact, it's not even abnormal in the grand scheme of this nation's history. But regardless of how you feel about the practice of military service in other nations uh, or our own, we do need to understand that as Christians, our citizenship in the kingdom of God does come with mandatory military service and will serve the kingdom of God eternally. There's no age of retirement, and there's also no getting discharged, uh, which is a blessing because each and every one of us would be deserving of dishonorable discharge. And this may sound like a burden to some of us, maybe some of us who struggle with laziness, or it may cause us to, to question whether or not we want that citizenship. We truly shouldn't because we need to remember how significant the gift of citizenship in the kingdom of God is. Those of us who are Christians already have had our sins forgiven. Even though we're deserving of eternal punishment, we've been granted eternal life with God because Christ has taken the punishment for our sins on himself on the cross. He has taken our punishment and we have received his life. And because this gift of citizenship is so great, our service to the kingdom of God is infused with joy because our service is to proclaim this gospel, this good news that we've received to all people. Christ, our risen King, has given us marching orders and the resources for the journey. That's the summary statement for our text today. Let me go ahead and repeat that. Christ, our risen King, has given us marching orders and the resources for the journey. In this, the final paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chooses not to include uh, any sort of account of the ascension. Instead, he ends with this pointed command of Christ to the disciples. The book of Acts written by Luke then shows the disciples faithfully following this command and taking it very, very seriously. Today, we're going to look at three key points in this passage that describe what our service to the kingdom of God is like. We're first going to look at the kingship of Christ. We'll look at the kingship of Christ. After that, we will look at the command of Christ. The command of Christ. And then finally, we'll look at the comfort of Christ. The comfort of Christ. First, let's look at the kingship of Christ. We'll read about that in verses 16 to 18. This passage begins with some very good news. In fact, the best news that is possible. The kingship of Jesus has been declared. Christ has now been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He has conquered death, and he's come back to life after his brutal execution, accomplishing what John the Baptist said he would in John 1, 29, saying, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And in his victory over sin and death, Jesus has been given all authority. We read that in our passage today. Look at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 18 with me. It reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Our passage this morning occurs following the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The two Marys have discovered the empty tomb, and the disciples have seen Jesus as well. Jesus has instructed them to meet them, meet him at a certain place, a certain mountain, and this is that place. We see that most of the disciples are already on board with the rule of Christ, uh, and the connections to what Jesus said in his life uh, have already clicked in their minds, but it took a little bit longer for some of the other disciples. Thomas, we know, is one of these disciples for whom it took a bit longer to understand. But here Jesus assures them of his identity in a very intentional way. His words, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Those words are an intentional reference to the Old Testament, which the disciples would have caught. If you want to leave your finger on this passage, this page, and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we'll look at where Jesus' choice of words came from. I'll give you a second to turn there. At this point in the writings of Daniel the prophet, Daniel has been given several visions uh, by God, and these verses are the end of one of those visions. God has revealed to Daniel a series of kingdoms that will come into existence and then pass away. But then God reveals a final kingdom, one that doesn't pass away. This kingdom, as we'll read, is to be ruled by a son of man, which really just means man. Uh, This is a name that Jesus used for himself frequently throughout the Gospels. We also read that this is an eternal kingdom, one that isn't based on ethnic identity, but instead it's based on submission to the king. Look at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 with me. It reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Back in Matthew 28, this is what Jesus is saying has happened in his death. He's been presented to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and God the Father has bestowed authority on him. And now others may also come under the Son's authority into his kingdom. And this is a safe place, one that will never pass away. In this passage, Jesus is speaking to those who have already submitted himself themselves to his authority. The disciples show that by worshiping the risen Christ. But we this morning need to ask ourselves whether we have submitted to the authority of Christ. Jesus has the authority over heaven and earth, whether we submit to it or not. Uh, Just like parents should be exercising authority over their children, even though their children may not always submit to their authority perfectly. This point is the foundation not only for the rest of this sermon, but it's also the foundation for the entirety of the Christian faith. If Jesus doesn't have the authority that he says he does, 
then there isn't any good news because there would be no kingdom. And, we, and if we don't submit ourselves to Jesus' authority, then this good news doesn't apply to us. Jesus has been given all authority and introduces us to his kingdom in this passage. And he has that authority whether we admit it or not. This is the gospel, that fallen people, which includes every one of us, can be reconciled to God through the atoning sacrifice of Christ by repenting from, turning from our sin and having faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness for our sins and we receive citizenship in Christ's eternal kingdom. We deserve eternal punishment, but through faith in Christ's sacrifice, God gives us eternal reward. This is an invitation as well as a command, though. We're invited to accept the sacrifice of Christ as atoning for our sins. But it's also a command that all people must submit to the authority of Christ. Now, being citizens of the kingdom of Christ does come with following the command of Christ, which is what Jesus discusses next. And we'll look at in verses 19 through the beginning of verse 20. They read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Christ, the risen King, has given us marching orders and the resources for the journey. And in these verses, we see the marching orders of our King. There are three parts to this command that Jesus gives us. There's one main point, and then there's two subpoints. The disciples are first commanded to make other disciples. Once a new disciple has been made, then the other two parts of this command follow. Those two parts are the, uh, the one-time event of baptism, and then there's also the continual pursuit of holiness through following the commands of Jesus. But first, let's, let's talk a little bit about disciple-making. The word disciple uh, just means follower. In this time, it referred to a more intentional study, like an intense mentorship where the student would follow the teacher and live alongside him. Just as the 12 disciples followed and lived alongside Christ during his earthly ministry. So is Jesus expecting us to have people that we have convinced to follow us so that we can baptize them and then teach them everything we know? Not exactly. Uh, while we should be working to be good role models and we should strive to be able to say, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we're not making disciples of ourselves, uh, but instead in this passage we're tasked with making disciples of Christ. And we make disciples by telling others about Christ's kingdom, about his conquering of sin and death. And those who, by grace through faith, accept this invitation into Christ's kingdom, they then become disciples of Christ alongside us. They are baptized, and then they're continued to be taught throughout this earthly life the pursuit of holiness and following everything that Jesus has commanded. 
Now, this, this is a direct command, uh, not only to the disciples that Jesus was speaking to at this time, but this is a direct command to us as well. You see that he, he tells the disciples to teach the new disciples to observe everything that he has commanded. Well, well this is one of those commands. And this command causes a, a cycle of disciple-making that continues until the return of Christ. It's how the church continues to exist. And to my fellow Christians, it's why we are here. At some point in our lives, a disciple of Christ has taught us about our sin and about the holiness of God and the salvation that's offered through faith in Christ. For some of us here, I'm sure, including myself, it was our parents that God gave us. They were the ones that taught us about the salvation that comes through Christ. For others, it would have been someone else that God brought into our lives later on. Maybe it was a coworker uh, or a friend. We should be participating in both forms of disciple-making. To the parents in the room, you should be teaching your kids about the punishment of sin and about the forgiveness offered by God from the time that they're born. My wife and I are expecting our first child here in next month and a half, and so this task is at the forefront of our minds. It's an exciting but also heavy responsibility, but we do need to understand that the salvation of our children is ultimately in the hands of God, so we should be sharing the gospel and praying for them. Um, Family worship is one practice that Pastor Tyler has been uh, pressing into recently, and, and I can attest to the significance and the positive spiritual effect that this has had on my family um, in the past months, even before the arrival of our first child. But the training of children shouldn't be the end of our efforts in bringing citizens into the kingdom of heaven. If we keep this good news to our own families, we're not taking the gospel to the world, to all nations. And even if we do all that we can to take the gospel to our communities, we're not taking the gospel to all nations as Jesus commands in this passage. There's also a need for Christians to be sent to other nations to proclaim the gospel. And it is a a sending of Christians by the church and to other nations. We read about this sending in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, if you want to turn there for just a moment. Paul in Romans chapter 10 says, verses 14, uh, says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In the paragraph beforehand, in verses 11 through 13, Paul has just made the case that the time has come for the message of salvation to be proclaimed to all people. It's not just for the Jewish people. But then look at his word choice in verse 15. 
He says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? He's saying that he doesn't expect Christians uh, to independently decide to go to another place to preach the gospel, but instead those who go are supposed to be sent out by a local church. This is also the pattern that Paul followed in his own life. We won't take the time to, to read about it today, but if you look back at or forward to um, Acts chapter 13, that gives us an account of the sending of Paul and Barnabas. They were first set apart by the Holy Spirit, and then they were sent out by the local church in Antioch. So we see that the responsibility of the church, it is the responsibility of the church not to hold on to the salvation that they've been offered to themselves, but they get but they are required to get it out to as many people as possible by sending those who will make disciples. How do you plan on accomplishing this task this year? Uh, based on this passage, we have two options, either going or sending, and both of these options are equally significant. Would you consider taking this year to prayerfully consider taking the gospel to another nation? Maybe to a nation that doesn't have the Bible in their language yet. Or maybe you could join my family in a nation that has been fatally missing the point of the gospel for a very long time. Uh, my wife and I uh, have a burden for the nation of Hungary. It's a country about the same size as Virginia, but with only about 3% of the population having placed their faith in Christ. Uh, imagine a place like the size of Virginia, um, but the only place where you could find uh, good churches that preach the gospel would be around northern Virginia, and maybe there was a, about a dozen churches there. And then throughout the rest of the state, there were sprinkled one or two uh, gospel-preaching churches. That's the state of the church in Hungary. They could use many more workers coming alongside them to help the church grow. We desire to make more disciples in Hungary by serving the church there. That's how my family is honored to be able to proclaim the gospel, and we would love to have brothers and sisters from this church join us in those efforts. The other option is sending, which we are sent by this church. For as long as God has you here, how do you plan on helping the gospel go to all nations? Prayer and finances are required by every missionary endeavor. How are you helping the gospel to be proclaimed in all nations? Those who go are by no means more significant than those who are sent, or who are sending, excuse me. No one could go without a church to send them. So after we've, we've read about uh, the making of disciples, we see that Jesus also gives us the, the two parts of discipleship that follow. We're supposed to be making disciples in our families and in our community and around the world, either by sending or going. But what does this look like? On this passage, Christ gives us two aspects of discipleship. First, the one-time act of baptism, and then the teaching uh, in all the ways of Jesus. The first, baptism. If you're a member of this church, uh, we can agree that this passage shows us that baptism comes after conversion. 
both baptism and the observation of all that Jesus has commanded in this passage are dependent on someone first becoming a disciple of Christ. We don't baptize infants and hope that they will one day become disciples. Uh, But instead, we baptize those who have already identified with Christ through their salvation. Baptism is an act that shows us who is already a follower of Christ. The person being baptized uh, is symbolically identifying themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a celebration for the church that confirms that someone has become a disciple of Christ. After commanding us to baptize new disciples, Jesus tells us what to do next, saying, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So what does Jesus mean by that? Is he commanding what some may call a, uh, a red-letter Christianity? Uh, teach only the things that Jesus said in the Gospels and, and nothing well, Jesus himself and the rest of Scripture would answer that by saying no. The entirety of Scripture is the Word of God, and it should be taught in its entirety. Second Timothy 3.16 reminds us of that, saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. We can't dismiss any part of God's Word. As disciples who were made by other disciples, we should be looking to Scripture so that we continue to grow. And as Christians who are called and expected to disciple others with the word of God, this forces us to ask ourselves, how well do we know our Bibles? We can't teach what we don't know. Uh, Our elders faithfully teach us from God's word every Sunday, and they are doing that by studying throughout the week. But are we, inspired by their example, also studying the word of God? Now, this may sound like a legalistic requirement to some, but it it really shouldn't. For the Christian, the need to be in God's Word every day should feel like our our need for food every day. We get to and need to read every day of the saving grace of God, how He miraculously gave us eternal life. And then we get to share that joy with everyone else. This is how Christ Himself saw the Bible— Uh, when he responded to Satan in the wilderness by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see him live out this example also in the end of Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 24, where on the road to Emmaus uh, with the disciples, Jesus uses the Old Testament to show how all of scriptures are profitable and pointing to himself. We should also be studying the Bible to know it in this way, using all scriptures to point to Christ. These are the marching orders of our resurrected king. But we would be ignorant to believe that we can do these things in our own strength. And that's why Christ included the final sentence of this charge and and the final point that we'll be looking at today. In the end of verse 20, we read of the comfort of Christ. Look at the last sentence with me. It it says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is is a promise that has been made multiple times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
it's mentioned first uh, in the beginning of Matthew's account in Matthew 1.23 by the angel who says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what we just celebrated last Sunday. This promise is made again by Christ in Matthew 18, verse 20. Uh, we're talking about uh, church discipline. He says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Our commission by Jesus would not be possible without Jesus. He has first made salvation possible and available. Without the resurrection, there would be no commission to share this amazing news with the rest of the world. And without the continual presence of Christ, we could have no confidence in the proclamation of our message. It would be up to us to come up with some creative way of convincing people of the truth of the gospel. But instead, he hasn't left us to do the rest on our own. He continues to be God with us. And God with us makes our proclamation effective. He's also given us the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who speaks through our words, uh, not in a way that causes any more scripture to be written, uh, but in a way that changes the hearts of others. It's God working through us that brings others to God. Now, this should be both encouraging and humbling, because our job is not to come up with anything new or any creative way of twisting the hearts of man into believing, but instead we're called just to simply invite them and, and to allow the Spirit of God to do the rest. The Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon summarized this passage in this way. He says this, this is our commission as well as theirs. From it, we learn that our first business is to make disciples of all nations. And we can only do that by teaching them the truth as it is revealed in the scriptures and seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to make our teaching effective in those we try to instruct in the divine things. Next, those who by faith in Christ become his disciples are to be taught are to be baptized into the name of the triune Jehovah. And after baptism, they are still to be taught all that Christ commanded. We are not to invent anything new, nor to change anything to suit the current of the age, but to teach the baptized believers to observe all things whatsoever our divine King has commanded. I want to conclude the message today with uh, a few questions that we should be asking ourselves. The first and most important question is this. Do you recognize the authority of King Jesus? And have you accepted his offer of salvation through faith in his sacrifice? This passage is about making disciples of Jesus, and we can't do that unless we have already become disciples of him ourselves. If by the grace of God, you're beginning to feel the weight of your sin, you recognize your need for a savior, know that Christ has offered forgiveness and salvation through his sacrificial death on the cross. If you have not accepted this offer and, and need to talk with someone about it more, feel free to talk to either myself or one of the, uh, the elders uh, or any of the members, and it would be our, our joy to talk about the gospel with you. 
my second question is this. Are you actively making disciples uh, both in your family and in your community, in the nation that God has you in right now? It is our joy to be at the service of our risen king, who in his unfathomable love for us gave himself on the cross so that we could be redeemed and serve and worship him forever. Making disciples is not the job only of those who are being sent, and it's not only the job of pastors, but it's the job of all Christians. What opportunities do you have in front of you to be active in evangelism? Many of us have family who are not Christians, either distant or immediate. That's one first step. Or maybe you're, you're living in an apartment complex where you have opportunities to share the gospel at the mailbox. Or maybe you have opportunities at your kids' sporting events to, to share the gospel with other parents. If this is something that sounds uh, difficult or uncomfortable for you, uh, consider asking a friend to either come alongside you or challenge you in this to be active in evangelism. There are ways to use whatever circumstances that God has given us to proclaim his message of salvation. My third and final question this morning is this. Have you considered how you can help make disciples in, in all nations, and in, in nations other than this one? My wife and I are honored and humbled to be sent out uh, by this church to make disciples and to teach disciples in Hungary. We have a deep love for the Hungarians and are excited to see churches in Hungary planted and many more Hungarians come to a saving faith in Christ. Are there any in this congregation who might be sent to other nations to make disciples? Perhaps coming alongside Raze and I. Some people like us, uh, my wife and I, God used stories of other missionaries, both past and present. Uh, as well as our experiences in Hungary to direct us to serving him in that way. And because it's the church that, that sends missionaries, it's also important to be talking about this desire to go with others, someone else in the church who will pray with you and come alongside you and, and give advice. Uh, I know that our elders would be uh, joyed to talk about that with you. However, if you if you know that God is not directing you to international missions, uh, then are there missionaries to partner with in making disciples in other nations? By praying for them and, and giving to missionaries, you are making it possible for people you may never meet to hear the gospel. There is no insignificant role in the proclamation of the gospel. It is the joy of each of us to serve our God through sharing his gospel with all who will hear. Those are the marching orders. Uh, and God himself is all that is needed for our work to be effective. Let's pray.